Hello, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to Harrisburg for our inaugural event of 2020. We're so excited to welcome you back to the bookstore as we ramp up a really wonderful author series here in 2020, and we couldn't be happier to kick things off with one of our favorite authors, Liz Moore. Before we begin, it's been a while since I've been up here, so I have several things to go over, so just bear with me. Uh, we have almost four months of events scheduled into 2020, so please check out our website and social media pages to stay on top of everything. Um, and because I can't help myself, I'm just gonna plug a few here, really quick. <laughs> on Saturday, February 1st, we have historian David Blake coming into town to discuss his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Frederick Douglass, that's Saturday, February 1st. And then on Friday, February 21st, uh, we're hosting Dan Pfeiffer, who is the co-host of Pod Save America and President Obama's former senior advisor. Now that event is ticketed, but we have tickets still available on our website. Now on to the main show. We are absolutely delighted to welcome, and I want applause here, as of this week, for the first time, New York Times bestselling author, Liz Moore. We really uh, uh, couldn't be happier for Liz, and it's really an honor to be a part of her book tour. Now I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the author we have on stage here tonight. Liz Moore is the author of the acclaimed novels Heft and Unseen World. A winner of the 2014 Rome Prize in Literature, her short fiction and creative nonfiction have appeared in venues such as Tin House, The New York Times, and Narrative Magazine. She lives in Philadelphia and teaches at Temple University's MFA program. Now her new, her new novel, which we are here for this evening, is called Long Bright River. It has been selected as the pick of the month for Good Morning America, The New York Times, and locally at WITF, and has received almost universal and widespread praise from such outlets as Entertainment Weekly, New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, Good Morning America, The Washington Post, and from such authors as Lee Child, Paula Hawkins, and Dennis Lehane. I'll leave you here with just one quote that I really liked. It's from Paula Hawkins. She says, set against the backdrop of Philadelphia's opioid crisis, this is not just a gripping mystery, but a thoughtful, powerful novel by a writer who displays enormous compassion for her characters. Long Bright River is an astounding crime novel bringing to mind the best of Dennis Lehane or David Simon. I found myself eking out the final pages because I didn't want it to end. I absolutely loved it. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Liz Moore to the stage. Thank you, Alex, um, and thank you, all of you, for coming tonight. This is one of my favorite bookstores in the United States. I'm sure that is uh, true for you as well, being that you're here. Um, you should all come back to all of the events that Alex described. Um, I would also come to them if I didn't live two hours away and have two little kids at home, but they do a very nice job with their events here. Um, so what I think that I'll do is start um, by describing some of the um, inspiration for this book and some of the research that I did in the process of writing it. Um, and then I'll read to you somewhat briefly, since I think conversation is more interesting than reading. Um, and then we'll do a Q&A, and you, you can ask uh, questions if you have them. Um, OK, so Long Great River is my fourth book, my third novel. Um, the first one that has been categorized as sort of like a mystery or literary suspense or a crime drama or whatever you want to call it. It's been called many different things. Um, 
It came out of work that I've been doing in a neighborhood called Kensington in Philadelphia for about a decade now. Um, in 2009, I moved to Philadelphia for the first time. My husband's family is from there. He grew up in the area. Um, I, w- I, am, I don't know if I can call myself a local at this point. Probably not. Philadelphians would say no. But um, it's the place I've lived the longest as an adult, certainly, and probably the city I know best of the three that I've lived adjacent to. Um, how many of you are either from Philly or have roots in Philadelphia? Anybody? Handful? Okay. So a number of connections. What about Kensington itself? Any connections? One, two, three. Good. Yeah. So then I don't have to tell you, handful of people, anything about Kensington. Um, but for everyone else, Kensington is um, like many uh, places in the United States, someplace with a very long, um, prosperous history as a manufacturing hub. It was at one time home to many, many factories and businesses. And then um, during the manufacturing decline in the US in the 60s through 90s, let's say, Kensington too experienced the closure of a lot of its industries um, and subsequently experienced a decline in its economic prosperity. which impacted the neighborhood in a variety of ways. Um, One of which is that today, um, it is a a place where very potent narcotics are regularly bought and sold. Um, But it is also a place where a lot of other things are going on too, I feel compelled to say on behalf of Kensington. Um, There's a lot of wonderful community initiatives going on, both from longtime residents in the neighborhood and from young people, people of all ages who are sort of moving to the neighborhood. Um, One of the reasons that um, I was introduced to Kensington is I was part of sort of a photojournalism project there back in 2009. And I continued to visit the neighborhood because I was so kind of moved by what I had seen and by what I uh, heard from the men and women that I spoke to. Also because my own family, like many families in the US, has a long history of addiction. Um, sort of a multi-generational journey through addiction, which we continue to this day. And so, um, I don't know, I sort of had like an autobiographical emotional connection to the neighborhood as well that kept me going back. So I wrote some nonfiction about um, Kensington, one piece of which was published by a small press housed within Kensington, which I think is an example of um, kind of another facet, another side of Kensington. It's called the Head in the Hand Press. They published an almanac in, I want to say 2012 or 2013, called the Rust Belt Rising Almanac. Um, I don't have to explain what it was about, I guess. Um, And through my nonfiction writing about Kensington, I began to feel very interested in writing fiction um, about the neighborhood. So I was at work at the time on my previous novel, The Unseen World, but I began to write um, short, a short story about Kensington, um, the two main characters of which were Casey and Mickey, who were the sisters that um, eventually found their way into the no- novel. That short story was not successful. It wasn't working for me um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so I put it aside for a while, and I kept trying to write other things, and I kept failing at writing other things, and eventually I just kind of decided this is the novel that I really want to write, and so I'm going to write it. Um, I was reading a lot of 
crime fiction at the time. I was getting very into, I've always been a, kind of a fan of the genre. Um, I was also watching a lot of detective film and television, which I still do today. So I was consuming all of that. And I think somehow as I began to write the novel, I was infected by <laughs> everything that I was reading and watching and listening to podcasts, things like that, and, and started experimenting with the idea that maybe this wanted to be a mystery or a thriller. Um, but because I had never written one before, um, I didn't really subscribe to any of the conventions of the genre, or let's say, I w basically I just didn't know what I was doing, and so I stumbled forward without any kind of uh, plan, which is probably why the book has been described by a lot of people as occupying multiple genres, or kind of like a cross genre. <laughs> it was all a mistake, but here it is. Um, so um, over the course of the next four years, I continued to write. And um, th this is Long Bright River. Um, for those of you who have not read it yet, I know it's only been a week and a half since it came out. So don't worry, I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody. Um, but I will tell you just a bit about the book going in so that nobody's lost while I'm reading. Um, this is the story of two sisters who grew up adjacent to Kensington on sort of opposite sides of the law. Um, both of them were the children of parents who were also lost to addiction, and so they were raised by their grandmother, G. And G was not a great guardian figure. She is a tough customer. Um, so the girls grew up and went in two very different directions. Casey, in her parents' footsteps, uh, began to struggle with addiction. And at the start of the novel, she's still struggling with addiction and living on and off the street uh, in Kensington. And Mickey, her older sister, has become a police officer um, and sees herself as sort of very like morally correct and upright. And Mickey, especially at the start of the novel, is somewhat judgmental of her sister. Um, but she feels so bonded to her by their closeness as children that when Casey, the younger, goes missing at the start of the novel, Mickey can't help but feel very worried about her um, and go searching for her, especially because simultaneously a string of murders of women who fit Casey's demographic is occurring. So that's the scene and Mickey, Mickey's journey um, in searching for her sister and trying to figure out who's killing the other women in the neighborhood um, forms the, the span of the novel. So I'm going to begin by <coughs> reading a section that sort of describes their weird relationship to one another as adults. Um, this, for anyone who likes to follow along, is on page 66. I'll read briefly from this part, and then I'm going to read briefly from um, a part that's told in flashback about their childhood. This is just after the page break on page 66. Uh, I'm sorry, after the paragraph break on 66. Line break, whatever you want to call it. Officially, Casey and I no longer speak to one another. This is in Mickey's voice. We haven't for five years. There have been rare occasions since then, three to be precise, when I have been required to interact with her at work, in my capacity as an officer, and in her capacity as a suspect. And during each of those times, I have conducted myself with dignity, as any professional would either processing her or releasing her, as I would do for any offender. 
To her credit, she too has conducted herself respectfully. When it is necessary to do so, I gently place handcuffs on the wrists of my sister, and I tell her the particular offense for which she is being arrested, usually solicitation and possession of narcotics, one time with intent to sell, and then I narrate her rights to her, and then I place a gentle hand on the crown of her head to ensure that she doesn't obtain an injury as she enters the back seat of our vehicle. And then I quietly close the door, and then I drive her to the station, and then I book her, and then the two of us sit silently across from one another in the holding cell, not speaking, not even looking at each other. Truman, who was her longtime partner before he uh, went out on medical leave, Truman was with me each time, and each time he too remained silent, watching the two of us guardedly, his eyes darting back and forth from me to Casey to me again, waiting to see what would happen. That was the weirdest thing I've ever seen, he said, as we were driving away after the first of these episodes. I shrugged and didn't reply. I suppose it would look weird to someone who doesn't understand the particulars of our history and the tacit agreement we've come to in recent years. I've never tried to explain it to Truman or anyone else. You look out for her, he said another time. When I demurred, he continued, you would have been done with patrol years ago if you weren't out here keeping an eye on your sister. You would have taken the detective exam. I told him that this was not, in fact, true. It's just that I've grown fond of the neighborhood and have grown to care a great deal about its well-being. And also, I find the history of the neighborhood interesting, and I like to watch it as it grows and changes. And lastly, it's never boring. On the contrary, it's exciting. Some people do have trouble with Kensington, but to me, the neighborhood itself has become like a relative, slightly problematic but dear in the old-fashioned way that that word is sometimes used, treasured, valuable to me. I am invested in it, in other words. Now, I'm going to read to you from a flashback. And this takes place on page 53. The book alternates between sections called Now and sections called Then, which are all told about the sisters' childhood and young adulthood. Um, and those flashbacks um, serve to I guess describe the girls a little bit more in their closeness, but also eventually become a part of the story and the mystery itself. When we were small, there was a field trip for certain fourth and fifth graders. Did I tell you the page number? 53, yes I did, okay. When we were small, there was a field trip for certain fourth and fifth graders to see the Nutcracker in Center City. I was 11 then, old for my grade, and Casey was nine. In those years, I was almost silent in school. When I did speak, it was at a very low volume, such that G used to tell me, with frequency, to talk louder, as did most of my teachers. I had few friends. At recess, I read. I rejoiced when inclement weather forced us to stay indoors. Casey, conversely, made friends every place she went. She was little and fierce then, light-haired, with strong limbs and a brow she mainly kept lowered. She had buck teeth that she often strained to cover with an upper lip. Around friends, she was affable and funny. Generally, our peers were drawn to her, but she also made enemies, mainly those who targeted the weak, who swapped cruelty to others for social cachet, a bargain that, from a young age, Casey disdained. She had a habit, therefore, of pointing out these injustices where they occurred, and then rising ardently and often violently to the defense of those in her class who were lowest in the pecking order. Even, her teachers argued, when it wasn't warranted, or when those classmates didn't want or need Casey's protection. It was for this reason that Casey had recently gotten kicked out of Holy Redeemer. The irony of the name was not, even then, lost on me, which meant that both of us were kicked out because G didn't want us in two separate schools. 
This was, for me, a misfortune. I had liked Holy Redeemer. I had advocates there, two teachers, one a layperson and one a nun, who had taken a particular interest in me and my abilities, who had cut through my shyness and seen something in me that they had painstakingly drawn out over the course of several years, and who had, separately, of their own volition, told G that they thought I was gifted. Though I was gratified by this, though it justified for me the mild vanity I have always possessed about my own intelligence, there was also a part of me at that time that wished they hadn't, because to G, gifted meant uppity, and if I wasn't punished for it, well, I was certainly looked at askance for a while. When Casey got into her final fight, the one that got us expelled, G had stood in front of us, glowering as we sat on the couch. You, she said, nodding toward me, need to keep an eye on her, she said, nodding toward Casey. So we both went to the local public school on Frankfurt instead, with all the children whose parents were too poor or dysfunctional to keep them in parish schools. Maybe, I supposed, this meant that G was too. In our new grade school, Hanover, Casey was immediately and unsurprisingly adopted by a group of other outgoing students, and I was immediately forgotten about. There, shy children went through their days unexamined. Any student who didn't make the life of her teacher more complicated was generally praised once or twice for go good behavior and then allowed to fade quietly to the back of the classroom. It was, no doubt, not entirely our teacher's fault. Our classrooms were full to capacity, 30 generally rowdy students in a small space. It was all they could do to survive. Still, being at Hanover was the only reason we were going to see the Nutcracker. Sometimes Philadelphia's public school students had things given to them in a way that parish school students did not. The city bestowed upon its public schools charity of various kinds, coats meant to keep us warm in winter, school supplies meant to keep us engaged in our classwork, cultural outings meant to allow us a few hours to ponder the large questions of life that are usually reserved for the idle rich. In this case, the outing was a prize awarded to students who sold the most wrapping paper in an annual fundraiser, a challenge Casey and I had taken very seriously, going door to door every weekend all fall. In fact, we had come in first and second place. I, for one, was delighted. I had worn a dress that day, my only dress, which G had brought home from Village Thrift in a rare moment of frivolity. The dress was beautiful, I thought, a blue cotton summer dress with white flowers on the bodice. But it was two years old by then and far too small. And over it, G had forced me to wear a boy's blue parka that had belonged to Bobby, a cousin of ours on our mother's side. It hadn't ever been washed, this jacket. It was salt-stained and slightly acrid-smelling, like Bobby himself. Beneath it, the dress looked stupid. I knew this even then. But I had never been to a ballet before, and I don't know why, but I wanted to demonstrate my respect, to acknowledge in some way the gravity of the occasion. So I wore it, and I wore the blue parka on top of it, and after lunch, I waited in a long school hallway for the buses to arrive, standing in line with everyone else, reading my book. Casey, just ahead of me, was as usual surrounded by friends. When it was time to board, I followed my sister up the steps of the vehicle and then followed her toward the back of the bus and sat down one seat behind her. It was a choice meant to assure my peers of my independence and myself of Casey's proximity. Her presence in any situation, familial or educational, tended to reassure me. There was a bright and funny music teacher that year, Mr. Johns, who had orchestrated the whole thing. He was young, probably younger than I am today, and the next year he was snatched up by a better school in the suburbs. As the buses approached City Hall, he stood up at the front of ours and clapped his hands twice and then held his right hand up in the air 
two fingers extended, the sign that was supposed to mean quiet. Everyone was then obliged to return the salute. As usual, I waited until someone else did it first and then raised my hand into the air, relieved. Listen up, said Mr. Johns. What are the rules we talked about in class? Don't talk, someone shouted. One, said Mr. Johns, holding up a thumb. Don't kick the seat in front of you, said the same person. Okay, said Mr. Johns, not one of the ones we mentioned, but true. <laughs> Tentatively, he held up a second finger. Anyone else, he said. I knew an answer. It was, wait to clap until you hear others clapping. I didn't say it. Wait to clap until you hear others clapping, said Mr. Johns. Number four, sit still, said Mr. Johns. Number five, no whispering with your friends, said Mr. Johns. No giggling, no squirming around in your seat like a kindergartner. He had told us all the story of the ballet and music class the week before. In it, a little girl lives in a mansion, he said. This is in the olden days, he said, so everyone on stage will be wearing old-fashioned clothes. He paused to think. Also, the men wear tights, he said, so get over it in advance. The little girl's parents have a Christmas party and invite her spooky uncle, who's actually a good guy, and he gives her a doll. It's called a nutcracker, and you can go ahead and get over that too. The night, that night, she falls asleep and has a long dream, and that's the rest of the ballet, he said. The Nutcracker doll comes to life and becomes a prince, and he fights off giant mice, takes her to a land of snowflakes, and then takes her to a place I forget the name of. It's like Candyland. The little girl and the prince watch while a few different dances are performed. The end, said Mr. Johns. Does she go back to real life after that? Asked a boy in my class. I forget, said Mr. Johns. I think so. And I'll stop there. Um, and I'm happy to take questions if anybody has any questions. So we are going to open it up to the audience uh, for questions. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. Uh, one caveat with uh, the audience. Um, this book is very spoiler heavy, so I just ask that no spoilers be revealed uh, for the questions. So. Thank you for coming to Harrisburg. Thank and you. Um, if I have my numbers correct, you've written one nonfiction and three novels? Uh, my first was actually a collection of sh like interconnected short stories. So oh I've never okay. written a nonfiction book length okay. work. Yeah. Um, do you prefer one genre or over the other? And do you see yourself over your writing life continuing to write both? Um, good question. I do write uh, nonfiction essays, for example. And as I mentioned, I had published um, an essay in that, that almanac. Um, I really love nonfiction writing. Um, in terms of book-length projects, I can't completely rule out the idea that I ever might write one, pr almost certainly not like autobiography because my own life isn't that interesting, but I really like researched nonfiction and I can imagine writing a book-length manuscript about a variety of subjects in that world. Um, fiction is my first love. I probably will continue to write novels primarily though. Thank you. how much uh, of you is in Mickey and how much is observation? Well, all of my protagonists, maybe all my characters, certainly have a dose of me in them. Um, in order to write them realistically and empathetically, I have to kind of identify with them in some way, probably. 
which is one reason I, I told you that the the short story I wrote that ins- that sort of sparked this novel was not successful. And I think one of the reasons was that I was trying to focus it on Casey, um, the sister who's struggling with addiction. Now, I have addiction in my family, but I have never experienced addiction myself. And therefore, I had difficulty locating like the authenticity I needed to write her character in a way that felt uh, truthful and respectful enough. And so Mickey was sort of a way into the narrative that allowed me to create a character with whom I identified with, in, for better or worse. Um, I mean, she has a lot of qualities that are problematic, and unfortunately I can identify with those too, like being very kind of rigid and by the book, and very, um, I talk sometimes about Mickey as a binary thinker, like this is wrong and this is right, and you are wrong and I am right. <laughs> and like my husband would probably tell you that I have like a little dose of that as well. <laughs> but he has his faults too. Um, you know, so you have to be able to identify, especially in like first person narration, what makes a character both flawed and understandable. Um, so I guess I relate to Mickey in that way. Liz, question to your left. I was just going to ask if you have a sister and if that was inspirational to um, the, the two main characters as well as what made you want to get into writing about addiction. Um, I do have a sister um, who is much younger than I am um, and uh, she would want me to make sure to say that she is uh, also very high functioning. And <laughs> herself is not the basis of Casey. Um, but the, the sisterly bond we have, I'm sure kind of makes its way into the book in certain ways. Um, I thought of her, I felt almost parental toward her when we were growing up because of our age difference, which of course is much greater than the age difference between Mickey and Casey too. And I felt protective of her. Um, and you know, before I had children, she was the closest thing I could imagine to like having a child or feeling like I, uh, protective of somebody to that extent. Thanks. Other questions? Yes, right. front row on the front row. No. <laughs> so writing style, I, our book club decided to read your book and so Having nothing else to do, I also read half an unseen world. Wow! So <laughs> retired. Thank you. So, Very good. Um, Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in heft, whenever the professor, the retired professor, talked, it was all lowercase. Uh-huh. In this book, when people have dialogue, there's no quotes. Uh-huh. It just is that a new trend? Is it a style you were trying for? Um, a lot of it has to do with voice. So both heft. And Long Bright River are written in the first person. The Unseen World is written in the third person. When a character is telling his or her own story, often the way that they they describe others speaking be, uh, becomes a hallmark of their voice to me. So um, uh, I think you might. Uh, I can't. Rem- I think it's Kel in in Heft who doesn't also doesn't use quotation marks. Um, and both Kel and Mickey 
um, who I use dashes with um, or hyphens and and dashes, I guess. I have a background in copy editing. I think that's an N dash. Um, uh, I think of as being somewhat reserved human beings and not wishing ever to announce their presence in any way and therefore have a sort of muted voice. Um, and the announcement that quotation marks bring, like a trumpet, you know, flare, is kind of um, antithetical to the way I think of them speaking. I think of them speaking quietly in a low tone of voice. And the visual of that um, is, I guess, what I was going for. I, uh, to answer your other question, I am not um, the first to do that. Uh, there's, a, there's like uh, something of a tradition of doing that in crime writing, too. I'm like, James Joyce did it, if I'm being honest, as did writers like Roddy Doyle do it. Um, I've read other fiction with a dash, so I didn't invent it, but, um, but I, I use it, in this book at least. Alex gets a workout at these. Other questions? Yes, two questions over here. I was wondering uh, what you can tell us about the title. Sure, absolutely. Um, the title took me a, a very long time to come up with. I had an, um, an untitled manuscript, or really I should say a, a manuscript with a bad title that I didn't like up until right before I submitted it to editors. Um, and at that point, I decided that I really needed to come up with a title that I liked a lot and that st struck me. And so I kind of like confined myself to a room for a full work day and said, you're not leaving this room until you come up with a title. And then I looked through every text I could think of that had anything to do with addiction, be it songs, um, poems, prose passages, books. Um, and I came across a poem by Tennyson uh, called The Lotus Eaters, which interestingly uh, has to do with what was then called opium eating. Um, which obviously is a forebear to um, opioid addiction. Um, and Tennyson himself had a brother who was addicted to opium. Um, so the sibling parallel was interesting to me. Um, that poem, The Lotus Eaters, forms the second epigraph in the book before the book begins. And in the second stanza of that epigraph, um, the sentence, which is in description of a group of sailors who are opium eaters, um, they are watching the long, bright river drawing slowly his waters from the purple hill. And the phrase long, bright river immediately leapt out at me as a phrase that had a lot of echoes in the novel. And I sort of inserted it, it retroactively several times, once in reference to a vein that, um, of somebody who's using heroin, once in reference to the Delaware River, um, which has an important history in Kensington, uh, is an important part of Kensington's history. And then ultimately it concludes the list that appears at the start of the novel and again toward the end in reference to the idea of a long bright river of departed souls. So it's sort of like this just bell tolling of names who have been lost, of people who've been lost, who are not um, real people, by the way. I've been asked that before. They are names invented by me, um, although they may coincidentally belong also to other people since they're somewhat common names. Question in the back. Me again. Hello. Oh, <laughs> you 
said you weren't originally from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Your husband was. Or, or he, he was born in Wilmington and grew up outside okay. Philadelphia. Uh, I know a bit about Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I just wondered what you found difficult uh, writing about Philadelphia settings and what were simple, easy. I think any time a writer, it's interesting, this is a big kind of topic in fiction in general right now. Um, uh, writing outside of your like immediate autobiography carries with it certain um, responsibilities, I guess. Um, and I, as I said at the start of the, uh, of, of the event tonight, um, I'm not um, from Kensington, so w with that comes an awareness that I, I, I have a lot of responsibility to represent Kensington respectfully. Mm -hmm. Because Kensing people from Kensington, um, I think, might feel about it the way that I feel about my hometown, which is that I can say bad things about it, but nobody else can say bad things about it, um, which is also what you hear about family, which is kind of an interesting parallel given the contents of the book. So I guess that was my main challenge, was wanting to write about a place that has been systematically failed by various branches of government and therefore is experiencing a crisis the likes of which I have rarely seen wanting to represent that truth while also wanting to make sure to portray it in a loving way and in a way that wouldn't piss off people from Kensington basically um, the handful of hands that went up we can talk afterward about whether or not I did that given that you have uh, experienced addiction in your family and you're writing about addiction, I just wondered, you know, given all of that, um, were there any epiphanies or insights that you developed about um, addictive personalities or the disease of addiction that you developed through writing this novel? Um, one sort of technical point that um, I grew more and more aware of and interested in over the decade that I have spent in Kensington is, um, and I think society is changing along these lines too, I hope for the better, is that opioid addiction is a sort of specific type of addiction that's different than other types of addiction that people might be familiar with. So I come from a family of like, very enthusiastic 12-steppers who are working those steps and that's what works for them and have like one specific understanding of sobriety. Um, and that type of understanding of sobriety is portrayed in this novel as like w with a certain judgment to it also. Not all people who are in 12-step programs have this understanding, but some do. Over the course of writing the novel and over the course of um, learning from people um, in and outside of Kensington, including addiction counselors, including people in recovery, in et cetera. Um, I have become aware of all of the data that supports the idea that MAT, medication-assisted treatment, can be a necessary long-term thing for people who are struggling with opioid addiction, and that understandings of sobriety can include people who are in long-term MAT as well. So that might not be exactly what you were talking about, but from 2009, I think we as a society, or at least I hope that we as a society are shifting our understanding to like what the data says about recovery from 
opioid use disorder. Any other questions? Yes. Sure. The first one is, did you ride along with Lucy? And the second is, with Nikki, was it a conscious effort for you to make her, um, the way she speaks, very staccato and <laughs> short, clipped, the way policemen do? <laughs> um, I did. I, I spoke to a number of police officers, um, one of whom was a woman. It was important to me to find somebody to talk to who could represent that experience as well. And then I did a ride along in the district adjacent to Kensington um, with a member of the PPD. Um, and that, uh, I was able to ask him um, sort of technical questions about like what police officers in the PPD do from start to finish of a work day, which are very difficult to research any other way than just spending a whole day um, with a police officer um, and kind of like quizzing him on like, Okay, but when do you put your shoes on? <laughs> like, when do you put your uniform on? Is there a locker room? You know, stuff that, like, how would a civilian know that if not with l through, like, direct conversation? Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, we're going to do here, and then one more question after that. <coughs> what are you planning for your next book? <laughs> Good question. Um, it takes me a while to write novels, so although I'm working on something, it's still very early days. Um, and I'm still prepared to think of it as a short story instead, as I did with this book for a long time. So I can't like commit to it yet. Um, I think my editor, my editor and I have had a conversation about how with this book, um, I am experiencing sort of like a larger volume of readership than with my other books. And therefore, there's this crossroads that I'm at, or that, that I'm at professionally, or that my publisher is too, which is, will I write another book that can be specifically categorized as crime drama? Or will I just write what I'm interested in writing, knowing that, in fact, my last two books, Heft and The Unseen World, could in a way have been categorized as mysteries themselves, although not as obviously. Both of those contained like puzzles that the reader had to figure out over the course of the book. So it, my instinct has always been to write in that way with a kind of strong sense of story. Um, it's possible that if my next book, I, I don't believe that my next book will be set in the world of policing and therefore it won't be marketed in exactly the same way, but I can't imagine writing a book without an element of mystery to it. So I hope that answers your question and probably, um, <laughs> From a totally like business standpoint, they will play up that that element of mystery, whatever it may be, for for my next book. Um, They'll put a so police car on the cover, even if there's no police officer <laughs> in the story. So I'm gonna end with the last question because Great. I can. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, so it's a two-parter. Um, uh, I caught most of the talk, but I missed a little bit of the beginning. You mentioned you were reading a lot of crime mm -hmm. fiction, and that was kind of served as inspiration for this book. Can you mention any of your influences, like specifically, sure. uh, for this book? And then, uh, <laughs> lastly, uh, one of my favorite books of the year, and it it felt really cinematic. Uh, is there a movie in the works? Sure. First question. Uh, it will be no surprise to you, uh, probably, who who also like contemporary crime fiction, that I love Tana French and read all of her books. Um, I also. Um, 
went kind of back in the history of crime writing um, and read some of the books that I first really liked in high school, including some Agatha Christie books. And there's a writer called Nio Marsh, N-G-A-I-O, whom I love. Um, uh, I read Gowdy Knight by Dorothy Sayers recently or during the writing of this book. I like it because it's kind of like a, that too is like multi-genre, like it's a kind of a campus novel, but also a, a mystery, murder mystery. <coughs> um, and it includes police work or detective work. Um, and then to your second question, um, yes, a movie, uh, the mo this book has been optioned by two production companies who came together to make an offer and I am attached to write, which is cool. So. It'll be my second time adapting a work of mine. I also adapted Heft into a screenplay, although that's sort of like floating around in L.A. someplace, and I don't know what's going on with it. Um, this one has like some momentum, so we'll see. I feel as optimistic as I ever feel about <laughs> things related to movie making. Great. Can we give it up for Liz? Thanks. <laughs> You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.